Well, good morning. It's great to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Well, I'm Brian Noble. I am CEO of Peacemaker Ministries. I come from Spokane, Washington. And everyone always asks us, does it rain a lot in Spokane? And the answer is no, it doesn't. It's actually like Denver weather. And uh, we're on that side of the Rockies. So in Washington State, we have the rainforest. We have the desert in the middle where I was born and raised in Yakima. And then we have the uh, dry forest on the, on the east side. And that's where Spokane is from. And so we're the other large city in, in, uh, in Washington State. I'm married to one wife, and I have four kids. And so I always say I'm married to one wife. I'll explain in a minute. But my first, uh, my oldest son is 19. His name is Isaiah, and he is a barber. And so he does barbering. My daughter is Isabella, and she's 17. She's a special needs child. She's never walked or talked, has a trach and a G-tube. And so therefore, my family always has a nurse with us. And so people will look at me like, who's your wife? Is it that lady or that lady? And so uh, that's why I always joke. I have one wife. And uh, my son, my next son is 14, and he's, his name is Gideon. He, was, he is born on April 1st, and he encompasses everything about that day. I'll just tell you that. Like, he will play a prank and wait for months for it to come to fruition. So, for instance, he put a fake mouse in the, in the pancake batter, and we had stopped eating uh, pancakes for whatever reason. I don't know why. We just weren't eating it. So we, we were getting ready to move, and my wife opens up the bag, and here's this mouse inside of there, and she screams, ah, and the flour goes everywhere, and, and it, he's just a prankster. And so then we have Gabriel, and he is our little angel. He's 11, and I'll say, Gabriel, will you please clean your bedroom? He said, it would be my pleasure to clean my bedroom. And I'm like, where did this kid come from? And so now when he doesn't obey me right away, I say, Gabriel, I tell thousands of people around the United States, I, it, you say it's my pleasure to clean the bedroom. And so he laughs about that. But yeah, we have been married for about 20-some years, and uh, we have uh, just, as a family, just have grown stronger and stronger uh, together. Uh, Peacemaker Ministries has been around for 30 years. Uh, we've been in 100 countries, 10 different languages, and this year our touch points are at 1.3 million people. And so, um, and what that means is we've introduced people to peacemaking, to, all the way to speaking in front of people or helping them with conflict and resolution within their organizations. Uh, I could be in a casino one week talking to HR departments, and I can be in the church the next week because we cross all lines of, of dealing with conflict, and we do it all from uh, a biblical core values. And so if you're saying, how do you do that in casinos, see me after service, and I'll tell you how we do that in, in, in uh, casinos as well. So as far as your church, oftentimes I'm asked, like, was it really bad? You know, was it horrible? And I'll just tell you, I'm not to play lightly on your elders or whatever, but it wasn't that bad. I mean, they were an easy bunch of guys. So, and there's a reason for that. Um, the spiritual foundation that you have prior to conflict will come out during conflict. And so when I go into organizations that have no spiritual foundation, no biblical foundation before, it's a lot more messy during the conflict. And so you should be proud of your elders and, uh, and deacons that were involved, or deacon that was involved. And uh, they did a phenomenal job of, of just resolving the conflict and, and working through uh, their differences. So give them a round of applause and thank them for that this morning. They say, what did, you, what did you do? You can pull out this little brochure. If you don't have one, I don't know if there's ushers that can hand these out, but uh, we want to make sure everyone gets one of these. Um, basically, what we talked about uh, in our time together was the difference between healthy tension and unhealthy tension. And so we use a rubber band principle for that. And so the rubber band principle is like this. It says that uh, we all have tension in our life. How many of you have tension? Yes. 
of six inches. How many love those days if you have teens? And so uh, we were up there, we're high-fiving like it's the Super Bowl, and we're excited about our sandwiches that were coming out. And all of a sudden, from behind me, I hear this lady yell out, I want my other six inches! And it was like, what? And we got kind of, you know how like when tension comes in the room, you're like, you know, you're like kind of freeze up. And I kind of step to the side with my kids, and, and she starts yelling at the guy behind the counter. He says, I want my other six inches. You, you charge me six inches for six inches. I should have got a foot long for that price. And the subway worker said, ma'am, it's not my job to read the sign for you. Yeah, that's what the whole restaurant went, ooh. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we heard these words that were like, beep, beep from the lady, and she stormed out, right? So there was, like, tension that was in the room. And so tension can take three forms. We have what we call underutilized tension. This is where a lot of, of, of us as a Christian church are, where we're kind of just relaxed in our tension. We just try to not use it properly. We also have improperly utilized tension, where we aim our tension at someone else. And this is where we come to that point of just, you know, pointing our tension at someone and not at a problem But what was the rubber band created to do? Hold things together. And that's properly utilized tension. And so with your elders and deacon, we walk through this idea of properly utilized tension in our relationship. And that's what these little arrows, um, you got to say, ooh, because I came up with this idea. So that's, (laughs) but that's where like the little arrows kind of point us towards pulling us together. And whether it's your marriage or your workplace or wherever it might be, I want to encourage you to properly utilize tension. The goal is not to get rid of all tension in life. How many of us know that tension is the way that the gospel refines our life? You ever go through, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials? And so that's the type of tension. So we walked them through that. And then we looked at their story. And so we listened to their story for an extended period of time, uh, each one telling their perspective. And these were the storyline questions we went through as we discussed. We went back to Ascend, and this is where they prayed uh, for each other and read scripture over each other. Um, it, some people say, this is, doesn't seem like a normal, natural progression. And I'll tell you, it's not. It's not normal for you to stop and want to pray for someone that you're in conflict with. Um, but your men did it very well. They prayed together and, and they uh, moved forward. And then they took personal responsibility. That's reflect. And so that's the personal responsibility part. And they, they owned their own stuff. They took the log out of their own eye. And then they connected by making a plan for the future. And so that's what we did is we walked through the path of a peacemaker. Now, they had a 108-page book that they worked through, not just a brochure. But this is a summary of that. And some say, well, what was the big problem? I'll just tell you. It was just minor differences that started escalating. And so if you're a visitor here, this is a good church. I don't want you to think, oh, no, I went to the wrong place, you know, or something like that. This is a great church. And how many of you ever had in your marriage or in your relationships where minor differences began to escalate and escalate? Does that happen to anyone? It happens in the church, too. So we shouldn't be surprised. There's something called human beings, and they're fallen, and they need Jesus, and it's just like they're everywhere. I don't know. And so it just happens. And so I want to encourage you. Uh, to, to continue to participate and be involved and see what God is doing uh, with Crosspoint. It's an amazing church of loving God and loving people. And so I want to encourage you to, to do that and, and to be a part of that. So that's the process that we went through uh, as a team, and we saw reconciliation. Now, here's the thing about reconciliation that uh, people ask me. It's like, is it really, is it really just that e- easy? I want you to think about that question. You know, is it... I mean, we went through, like, however long of, of this unhealthy tension stuff. 
is, is it really just that easy? And I'm like, well, it probably wasn't that easy for Jesus. I mean, he had to die for reconciliation, right? And so when you think about it, while we were yet enemies, Christ reconciled us. And so thinking through that concept of reconciliation, it is that easy. It's a new day, a new beginning. And I'm just honored to be a part of that, be a part of that process. So peacemakers, we travel all over, and we have resources on our website that you can look at that help you deal with conflict in a biblical way. And uh, I want to encourage you to be a part of that. What we find most often in families and in churches is that people call us later rather than sooner. And so once we, um, have you ever seen that show, Dr. Pimple Popper? He's like, he can't believe he just said this. But yes, I'm saying that. Have you seen that? Like where the doctor comes in, he, she pops the pimples. Like people will come in with these growths like this big. Some of you don't want to admit. It's okay. It's all right. We've all seen it. Or my kids, maybe you haven't all seen it. But some of you are on like your phones right now. Dr. Pimple Popper. It's on YouTube. It's really disgusting. But anyways, she comes in and she pops pimples, right? And what, what she tells them is like, man, I wish you would have come a little bit sooner. It would have been a much easier uh, operation. That's the same thing we feel at Peacemakers is if you call us sooner rather than later, we typically can help you through uh, your conflicts. And so I'm just proud of this church. I'm proud of the leadership of the church and to see that God is still in the process of redeeming mankind and changing and transforming us from the inside out. Amen? Amen. So let's get into the word of God today. How many of you notice that in our world that there's conflicts and fighting and quarrels all around us? How many of you notice that? Like, no matter where we turn, uh, we have these conflicts. And as a peacemaker, we want to see God begin to step in and to move throughout those conflicts. And sometimes what happens is we begin to have a story running through our mind of conflict in our life. And it's, it's a story that is very difficult. How many of you ever have that story where you begin to see through a lens, where you begin to see through a way, which is constantly playing in your mind? And so maybe it's about a family member or a friend, or maybe it's about a relative that, that you've known. And so we're going to talk about that story that goes on in our mind. And we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, it says this. When you're there, say, I'm there. A couple of you there. Some of you are saying, my battery's dead, right? It says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And I want you to look closely at that scripture, because oftentimes when you're thinking about the word of God, we can take our, our environment or our understanding of scripture and try to lay it over that set of scriptures. But when we look at this very clearly and very closely, it doesn't say, blessed are those who do peacemaking, for they shall be called the sons of God. Because if you, uh, if you interpret it, that scripture that way, you bring your salvation to a point of works. He says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. See, peacemaking is what you are, not just what you do. Because the Prince of Peace dwells within you, you are a peacemaker. You say, wait, 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 but I know my actions, I know my behaviors, I know what, what, what I've done in life. And the reality is, I don't care what your actions are, I don't care what your behaviors are, because Jesus Christ dwells within you through faith that he has come in and he's taken residence, the Prince of Peace has taken residence inside of you, you are by nature a peacemaker. So every place we tread, wherever our feet go, it brings the gospel of peace with us. And so God says to us today, through his word, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And we look at our society and at Christians in this world, we say, wait, wait, wait. 
if we are if we're called peacemakers, then why do we why do we seem to do conflict just as horribly as everyone else does? And that is because in our nature, we're striving for that story of our life, that, that story that we tell ourselves. And we need to understand something, that we live in a state where we can be transformed from the inside out, where God begins to transform our hearts and reshapes the context of our lives, and he begins to move upon us so that what's true about us on the inside becomes true about us on the outside. My wife and I, we have a very spicy marriage. You know what that means? We're both very blunt, right? We're blunt people. How many of you have a spicy marriage? How many of you just lied? <laughs> See, what I'm saying to you is, Tanya and I, if, if, in, in, in of, of ourselves, uh, we're, very, we're very blunt with each other. And so we have a spicy marriage. And sometimes it's like I tell my kids, uh, you know, I teach my kids, the cross is big enough. And, and I teach my, my, my kids, you know, the gospel's good enough and all these kind of stuff to, to the reconciliation. So Tanya and I will be having a discussion, you know, a Christian discussion. You guys get what I'm saying, right? A spicy one. And, and she'll say something, I'll say something, and my kids will say, hey, Dad, isn't the cross big enough? And I'll say, kid, if you say that again, I'm going to nail you to that cross. See, what I'm saying to you is, just because we have Jesus on the inside, sometimes it seems like it's hard to get him on the outside, right? But I want to remind you of your identity before I give you some practical steps of how to transform your life. I want to remind you that you are a peacemaker because Jesus dwells within you. That's your identity statement. Look at the person next to you and say, I am a peacemaker. Go ahead, you have to all do this. It's participatory. There we go. See, this story that we tell in ourselves, and this, now I want to go to a biblical principle, and it comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I'm working up to my text for the day, which is in Philippians. So if you want to go through all these verses, you can head over to Philippians. But Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul is writing to us, and he says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual service of worship? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Look at this verse. He says, I want to urge you to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Now, a holy sacrifice is something that's dead, right? So he says, I want you to be a living dead thing. Think about that for a moment. I mean, that's like, it's, it's, it's contradictory, isn't it, in nature? He says, I want you to be a living, dead thing. But here's what we have to realize, church, is that until we understand and embrace the gospel, that we are dying to self and living in the newness that comes from Christ dwelling in us, we will never have victory in our lives. It only comes from being living dead things that we understand and comprehend that God is for us, that who can be against us? It's only becoming a living dead thing that we begin to understand that God can transform our everyday lives. Now look at, look at what he says here. He says, I want you to be a living dead thing, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service for worship. And then he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I will tell you, I've helped thousands and thousands of marriages, churches, workplaces, and communities. I will tell you, that the number one thing is the story that people tell themselves. You're either telling yourself a fallen story 
or you're telling yourself a redemptive story, a God story. How can it be that people who go through the same experience come out on the other side with two different directions, one with bitterness and one with forgiveness? If we take some of the most uh, horrible events of our, of our world, of our history, we take the Holocaust. How can two people, one filled with, come out with, filled with bitterness and one come out filled with forgiveness? A lot of it has to do with how they handle the thoughts, the transformation of their mind. And what's interesting about this scripture is the story we tell ourselves, the God story that we tell ourselves will directly influence how we handle our marriages and our interactions in life. Let me give you an example. I mentioned that my daughter has never walked or talked. I can remember as a pastor, I've been a pastor for about 20-some years, I can remember... um, officiating a wedding, a bride comes to the center aisle, and it hits me for the first time that I would never walk my daughter down the aisle. And so tears kind of welled up in my eyes, and you know, like, I don't know if you've ever officiated a wedding or been up front, and you're trying to keep things together, you're supposed to be the one in control, and it's like out of control inside, and, and so uh, the bride's there, and everyone's like looking at me, and I was very close to the bride and groom, and so she comes down, and I officiate the wedding. Afterwards, at the little party, people are like, that was so sentimental. You cried over the wedding. And as any good pastor, I didn't tell them about the pity party I was having. I said, yeah, I just love the couple, you know, and, and kind of lied to them, you know, in essence, as I, as I went. And I was sitting in my car, and I was thinking about, um, about this. I was, have you ever complained to God? You know what I mean? Like where you're like, God, why this? And you're telling God all about your self-right, you know, your righteousness that's really self-righteousness. And I, I was telling God, God, I was a virgin when I got married. God, I was this, I was that. And I was just proclaiming, why do I have a disabled child? You know, and, and taking my righteousness to God. And God just laid on my heart. He said, Brian, the men of this world get to walk their daughters down to losers. I know, like some of you are like, I think he just called every man in this room a loser. But, yeah, I did. They get to walk their daughters down to losers. You'll get to walk your daughter down to the king of kings and the lord of lords. The first word out of her mouth will be Jesus, not anything else. Her first dance will be in the presence of God. And so I went from this story of woe is me, woe is me, to yay is me. So I got up the next day at church and I said, guess what? All of you get to walk your, your daughters down to losers like this, right? And they all went, what? You know, and... But I get to walk my daughter down to the King of Kings. So here's what I'm telling you, church. I'm saying that our thinking really plays into how we deal with conflict in our lives and how we just live our lives in general. And the story we tell ourselves, I I can tell you that heaven is going to be a very, very sweet place for those who've had to go through hardships here on earth. Think about this. If earth were perfect, how boring heaven would be. One of the things that offsets heaven is the joy that comes from the difference between earth and heaven. And for some of you who've suffered, or maybe you've lost, you've miscarried children, or maybe you've lost a loved one, or whatever the hardship is that you've gone through, that reuniting is going to be joyous in heaven. And so I want to talk to you today about your story. What story are you telling yourself? And we can put that in the context of this church. We can put that in the context of our marriages, our friendships, our relationships, And I want to talk to you about having a God story. So we're going to go to Philippians chapter 4 and and look at this today. Let us pray, though. Philippians 4. Heavenly Father, I just thank you as we get into your word today that you have made us peacemakers because of your son, Jesus Christ, that dwells within us. Lord, I pray that you would take and you would settle in our hearts and in our minds 
that you are a good, good God, that you are for us, that you're not against us, God. And Lord, even though we experience tension or conflicts here on earth, God, that you're a God that sets us free from those tensions or sets us free from those conflicts, God. God, we ask that you would take and you would transform our minds today, that we would simply have our mind set on the things above and not on this earth, God. God, we would be quick to run to you, God. And we thank you for your goodness in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So in Philippians chapter 4, this is our text for the, the day. It says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. In verse 2, he introduces, I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony of the Lord. Now, first off, you've got to look at these names. These names are crazy, right? I urge Eodia and Syntyche. Could you imagine? Wake, I mean, we don't pick those out for English names, do we? Like, what's your name? Eodia and Syntyche. Now, someone's going to say, that's my name. Oh, <laughs> sorry. No. But uh, Eodia and Syntyche are two unusual names. And then he says this, I urge them to live in harmony in the Lord. And obviously, what we can see from the scripture is that they were living in disharmony. They were working in this, uh, this idea of not being in, in harmony with each other. And so he says, I urge Eodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And then he says this, Indeed, true companions, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle for the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. I love that introduction into this last part of the book because he is saying to Eodia and Syntyche and to Clement, he's saying, I want to remind you of your eternal destiny, that your names are written in the book of life. And he says, I want to remind you that, that God is with you, that they are true companions for the sake of the gospel. He validates them and encourages them, even though they're in a place of disharmony with each other. And then he gives them some very practical tools as to uh, what to hold on to about the lives. He says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, when you're in conflict, how many of you want to rejoice? Not most of us, right? We don't want to rejoice. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say to you, I want you to rejoice. See, we oftentimes say, complain in the Lord always. And again, I say, complain. But that's not what the Bible says to us. He says, I want you to have a heart of rejoicing that the gospel message is working out within these ladies' lives. That they begin to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, why two rejoices? Because if we don't rejoice twice as Christians, we'll forget our rejoice that we did in the first place. He says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord, and I want you to rejoice again in the Lord. Because if we don't rejoice twice, we will begin to, to forget that. So here's what I want you to do this morning. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm glad that Jesus dwells within you. Re do a rejoice. Come on, tell them. See, we're not talking about rejoicing in their fallenness. We're talking about rejoicing in the Lord. I used to have a board member who would always say, excuse me, I want to play the devil's advocate right now. And I looked at him one day and said, I don't need a devil's advocate. I need a God advocate right now. Because it doesn't take, it, it takes any demon can see what's wrong with another person. It takes an act of the Holy Spirit to begin to see the gospel living out in that other person. To see that Jesus is alive in that other person. It takes an act of the Holy Spirit to see what's right about them. 
And here's what I know about the stories that go on in our heads, is that if we want to transform our mind, it's not about retelling the story of someone else's fallenness or our own fallenness. It's about telling the story of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for that person's sins, that Jesus Christ rose again for that person, that he, they are brand new in Jesus. They say, well, what if they're not a believer yet? Well, you know, we've got to begin to pray and believe that they're going to accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior, because Jesus dies for them and cares for them. And so what I'm telling you is we begin to rejoice, not rejoicing in our circumstances, but rejoicing in God's deliverance through our circumstances. Here's what I know about conflict. When humility steps in the room, Jesus always wins. Think about that for a moment. When we become humble under the presence of God and we rejoice in what God is doing, and so we have this little sheet that we make people do. I want you to rejoice twice over this person that you're in conflict with. And you should see people. They, they struggle with that. They, they don't want to do it at times. Because what? They've only been thinking about the other person's fallenness. And now I'm asking them to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Think through that. Like, if you're having a continual conflict with your spouse, what's a rejoice that you can begin to have with them? What's a rejoice again? And it's not in their, in their humanness. It's in what God's doing in their life. I can remember, um, how, many of you, how, how many of you know that marriage can be very difficult at times, right? Yeah, some of you are not raising your hand because you're like, my spouse is right here. But, like, I've been married 21 years. My first four years were hell on earth. It was horrible. Because two opinionated people got married and God started working off, out the gospel. My next seven years... It was like purgatory. I don't even believe in purgatory, but I live there. <laughs> right? My last 10 years, it's been like we've been friends, and we just we have a good time with moments of like purgatory, but not, nothing that bad, right? And so what I'm saying to you is that sometimes the story in my mind about Tanya and the story in her mind about Brian was like not rejoicing the Lord. It was simply all the negative things or all the things that they've done wrong. And we begin to set our mind on the things above when we rejoice in the Lord. Again, he says rejoice. It will transform our thinking. It will tell us a new story about the other person. Now look at this. Verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all. Why? I heard someone say it. The Lord is near. He's telling Eodian and Syntyche, I want gentleness to rise up within you. Let it be known to all. So in other words, Iodian Sintiki, you haven't been very gentle. And I want that gentleness to rise up. Why? Because God's presence is around you. There's, there's, in, in our lives, we can be, sometimes there's gentle people, and there's sometimes there's ungentle people. But the ungentle people can be two things. Remember the rubber band where I said we can be like this, where we have relaxed tension? Did you know that you could be considered a gentle person? But really, it's out, outwardly you're gentle, but inwardly you're in turmoil. So you're, you're just good at faking it. That's all you are. And there's others of us who outwardly, we're not gentle, and we say exactly what we think, right? The gentleness goes out the door. It's just the difference of this versus this. But guess what? They're both un unhealthy tensions. When you have anger or bitterness stewing inside of you, and you don't say anything, and you just keep going on that, that's not a spirit of gentleness. That's a spirit of being fake. When you have it out here and you're aiming your tension at everyone else, it's, not, it's, not, it's obviously not gentleness, but that is a spirit of just trying to take control of everyone. 
And so what does God say? He says, let your gentleness be known to all. Why? Because the Lord is near. He has surrounded you. Your motivation is that God's presence is with you. I love that saying because it's repeated throughout all the Old Testament and New Testament that God will be near you. He will go with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He, he will surround you. He, you know, we have the cloud and the pillar and we have all these examples of God's nearness to us. And so God is near you today. He says, we've got to tell ourselves this new story that we are a gentle people, that we can be gentle even if it's in correction. Lord, make me a gentle person. So he says this, let your gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is near. Then he says in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. But, look at this, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You ever get anxiety in the midst of conflict? Like on the way down here, we had, uh, I don't know why this happens to me, but we had a, a, uh, a lady, we were taxiing out in the airplane, and uh, she had a medical emergency on the plane. I don't know what happened, but I know we had to come back into the gate, and they, they took her off, her, our, off of our plane, right? And I was sitting there thinking, at first I had a selfish thought. I thought, how am I supposed to get to my appointment on time? That's the first thought that went in my mind. Then I said, shame on me. I th my second thought was, I hope this lady's okay. Right? And so we could start telling, like, woe is me, I'm going to be late for something. Or, yay, I'm going to start praying for them and start believing that God's going to touch them and be with them. Because then I started thinking about their perspective. Right? The husband had to follow the lady off. They had plans of going somewhere. That was all interrupted with her medical emergency. And so we can begin to reshape our thinking by looking at our anxiety. In Psalms 139, 23, and 24, it says this, Search me, O God, and know me, and see if there's any anxious thought within me. And so we think about our anxiety that we can have, and we can give that anxiety over to God. Now, it's interesting about the verses. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Here's what I find out about most Christians. Most Christians, they don't want to thank God before it happens. They only want to thank God after it's taken place. But notice this. The anxiety may not have left. That there was still prayer and supplication, but we do it with thanksgiving. We say, God, I thank you that you're in control of my life, my situation, way before anything ever changes. I'll tell you a story about this couple who came into... Uh, my office. They had scheduled a marriage retreat. And they sat down, and uh, we have a process, and, and so we did all the process before. And then we sat down together on a Friday night. And this couple sits down, and the first thing I say, if you look at the brochure, is I say, tell me your story. Well, we prayed, and I said, tell me the story from your perspective. And the wife says, he doesn't talk. That's what she said to me, just like that. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean he doesn't talk? I said, well, let's let him go first. He talked for two and a half hours telling the story of their marriage. I wanted to say, maybe it's like, but I didn't say that. I just thought that, right? And so he, she, he talked for two and a half hours. He got done. We prayed. And then I said, all right, now you tell me your story. She talked for two, two and a half hours, three hours. I, don't, I didn't really keep track. And got done. We prayed. And so I said, okay, so tomorrow you're going to come back on Saturday, and we're going to go uh, back we're going to go back to the presence of God. And she goes, I don't know about that. So came back, and we read some scriptures. They prayed over each other. And 
they were just very anxious over this whole thing, right? And so we began to we began to we began to talk and we started looking at taking the logs out of their own eyes. And this is what we did. We took some sticky notes and I said, now here's what I want to do. I want you to take responsibility for your contribution to the conflict. And so we put on some sticky notes, and we write, started writing, writing their sin down. Now, at first, they didn't put anything down that was re they were responsible for. I had to go up to the wall and put my sin up on the wall and put it up there. And they're like, I think he's writing his sin down and putting it on the wall. I said, yeah, I think so too. So they grabbed sticky notes, and they were putting up their sin on the walls, like with these sticky notes, telling us what they had done wrong. And I see the lady. She's like counting his sticky notes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And she's like, oh. And so she would write another one to make sure that she had more written down, right? They began to confess their sins to each other. Guess how long it was? 12 hours. This was a guy she said wouldn't talk at the beginning. So they started confessing their sins, but guess what? The anxiety came back up because the last thing she was going to confess to him, she says, uh, I, I can't say his name. I'm thinking his name, so I got to think of Bob. We'll just say Bob. I have $30,000 of credit card debt that you know nothing about. So Bob yells out, Pastor Brian, come back in here. Because I had left the room. I got so bored of their confession. I'm like, I'm going to go work over here, write a book or something. So I, I got out of the room. And, and so I come back. I'm like, yeah, what's up? And he goes, uh, I don't know if I can forgive this one. Because this is the second time she's done this. She had, I said, what, what, what happened? She has $30,000 of credit card debt that I just found out about. I, was, I said, ooh, that's not good. And he was like, no. I said, so let me ask you a question. I said, how long do you want to be ticked off for? He said, excuse me? I said, how long do you want to be mad for? And she, he goes, I don't know what, you, what you're talking about, how long. I said, God puts a parameter on his anger. See, if we, if we don't, if we just we're ticked off forever, our anxiety keeps going up and down, up and down. I said, so God says, don't let the sun gun down on your anger. He says, my anger is for a moment, but my, my loving kindness is for a lifetime. So how long do you want to be ticked off for? And he goes, uh, I said, I'll give you two weeks. He goes, what? I get two weeks? Now, for every Pharisee in the room that says it should only have been 12 hours till the sun went down, you can have your anger for that long. I gave this guy two weeks, right? So, uh, so for two weeks, they, they, uh, they, he was mad. First Sunday, I checked on him. He was like, I'm still mad. I said, well, you got seven days, seven more days of anger. <laughs> and he's like, okay. So I said, live it up. Live up your anger really good because this is the last seven days. So he comes back this next seven days, and so I said, oh, today's the day. It's over. He goes, I don't feel like it's over. I said, I don't care how you feel. He goes, what do you mean you don't care how you feel? Could you imagine if our relationship with Jesus was all based on our feelings? He goes, I don't care how, I said, I don't care how you feel. It doesn't matter to me how you feel because, see, the cross was both an event and a process. And if Jesus, in fact, he, we, we see some of Jesus' anxiety. He says, God, if there's any way, take this cup from me, right? He, we could see, like, I mean, he wasn't excited about going to the cross. And then he says, but not my will, your will be done. So he moved from what his anxiety was over to what, what, what he was supposed to do. So in the middle of our, of our foyer there, I grab his hands. He says, what are we going to do? And so I'm one of those awkward people that likes to do awkward things at awkward times. And you've got to understand, there's like 2,000 people that go to this church. And so I grab his hands. I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, right in the middle of the thing. And he's like, I opened up one eye, and he's just, like, looking around, like, oh, who's going to see me, <laughs> you know? And so I said, we just laid down this injustice at the cross and blah, blah, blah. And I said, now go tell your wife that you forgive her. And so he went in, and he said, honey, I'm laying at the cross. I forgive you. And now they would come to church, and it's like, have you ever heard that expression, get a room? <laughs> they were, like, lovey, flirty, you know, all that kind of stuff. 
And so they would come in like that, and I'm like, it was sickening, right? And so I was like, what changed? Nothing changed. They still had the $30,000 credit card debt. In fact, I checked with him last week. I said, how are you guys doing? He's like, it's going good. I said, good. I said, um, I had thought that they had kind of went cold again. He said, no, we haven't gone cold. We just got mad just that one weekend we saw you. And I said, oh, good. And so uh, he said, no, we're, we're doing well. I said, how's the credit card? He goes, oh, I got that paid off. I said, oh, you got it paid off? He goes, well, I refinanced the house. That's what we did last time. That's what we did this time. I said, oh, good. But they're, they're back in love again. Why? Because they took care of their anxiety and began to thank God for each other again. And this is what I'm telling you. You can be as anxious as you want for as long as you want. But if you don't become thankful for the problem, but you become thankful for the cross, it will change you and transform you. Is this making sense? You thank Jesus that he died on the cross for that, and it begins to take care of our anxiety. Now look at this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he says, rejoice, rejoice, let your gentle spirit be known to all. He says, be thankful, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Notice what he says there, that the peace of God, remember we read about transforming our minds by, right, by the renewing of our minds? We do that by rejoicing in the Lord always, and we rejoice in the Lord again. Then he says this, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything excellent, and if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell or think on these things. We've got to hold on to in our minds the things of the gospel in the other person, whatever is true. The truth is, you're just not that big of a deal. In fact, in conflict, the bigger of a deal that you think you are, the more conflict you're going to have. Look at the person next to you and say, you're just not that big of a deal. People always laugh when I do that. I don't know why. Because our whole culture right now tells us, you're a big deal. You're a big deal. You're a big deal. You're a winner, champ. Come on, champ. You're a big deal. And guess what? You're not a big deal. If you've embraced the cross, Christ Jesus is the big deal. That's the truth about you. And the more that you think that you're a big deal, the more that you think it's all about you, the more that you think it's all about your satisfaction, the more conflict you're going to be in. The more that you understand that the gospel is working out in others, that the gospel is playing out in other people's lives, the gospel is playing out in your life, and that you're not that big of a deal, the, the reality is that you'll just you'll sense the conflict go down in your life because that's the truth about you. You've died to self, and Jesus now in you is the big deal. I, as I travel a lot, so I go to like a thrifty car dealership or rental place, and I remember walking up one day, and I have this thing called blue chip, which simply means that I've given them my name and address and expect extra service for nothing else. You know, like I, the, the reward member, right? And so I walk up to the counter, and I'm frustrated because my name isn't on the little screen, right? And so I'm like, hey, um, my, I'm a blue chip member. You know, I did it all really confidently. I'm a blue chip member, and my name's on the screen. And the guy's like, oh, I'm really sorry. Let me, let me fix that for you. And so I'm, I'm, I wanted to tell him, like, last week, the same thing happened to me. So I say, hey, just so you know, like, last week, the same thing happened to me. And I'm, I'm getting kind of frustrated because I should be able just to walk right through the line. And I'm thinking about switching to Avis, right, Over, or to Enterprise or one of the other car rental places. And the guy says, hey, that's really fine with us. You, can, you probably should switch. That's what he said to me. 
And it was like God's way in that moment, like going, Brian, you're just not that big of a deal. You see what I'm saying? Right? And so it like humbled me. And then I was thinking, I hope he doesn't... I hope he doesn't see, like, what company I work for. <laughs> That's what I was thinking as I was doing this, because I'm thinking he's going to see it's peacemakers, and I wasn't being one. Um, so I want you to know that the truth about you, the bigger of a deal you think you are, the more, more anxiety, more tension you're going to have in your life. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, think about those words. Are you holding on to what is true from God's perspective about the other person? Are you holding on to what is honorable about the other person? Are you holding on to whatever is right? Are you holding on to what is pure or lovely about the other person? It's not in themselves. It's in the Jesus inside of them. I was in Uganda speaking one time. And as I was speaking, I got to the, the congregation. I said, God is good. And they said, all the time. And I said, all the time. And they said, God is good. And then they said, because that is his nature. And I said to the interpreter, I said, they said something else at the end. What, what was that? He said, oh, they said, because that is his nature. And I said, okay, I got to try that again. So I said, God is good. And they said, all the time. I said, all the time. They said, God is good. And then in unison, they said, because that is his nature. And I was like, thinking about that for a moment. Because in the United States, when we do that, we leave that part out, right? We don't, we don't say that part. I was thinking about, are we trying to discover the nature of God, his goodness, in the midst of our tensions of life? It's like a rose. God is good. God is not good. God is good. God is not good. Circumstances are good. Circumstances aren't good. Circum- you know, it's like put down the rose and just say, you know what, I don't know, but God is good. And I was looking at my marriage, and I was like, with my marriage, it's like, she loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. And it's like God says, put down the rose and just say, I don't know, but she loves me. See, that's what's honorable is when we begin to see the gospel through somebody, that we begin to say, you know what? It's, it's, it's not about trying to decide by our circumstances or by other people's actions, whether they care for us or don't care for us. It's about that idea of just saying, I'm going to put down the rose and say, I know this about this other person. They love me. I love them. The gospel is good, and I'm going to move forward. And church, if we could do that with our relationship with God, if you're trying to figure out God in the midst of your conflict, in the midst of your trials of life, you will always be disappointed because your circumstances at times will point to other things. But I can tell you that no matter what you go through, God is good. He is a good, good God. We do live on this side of, of, of in fallenness, but at one point, all the injustices of our life will be made right in the presence of Almighty God. So we can know and understand that his goodness is for us. And whatever is true, whatever is lovely. So what we do is we have people write these things down. If you're in conflict with someone, we have them write down a rejoice. A rejoice. Asking God for gentleness. Write down your anxiety. Write down something for thankfulness. Write down something true about them from God's perspective. Something honorable. Something right from God's perspective. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely. Then we have them write these things down and identify and then dwell or think on those things about that person. And it will transform your thinking. So oftentimes in our conflicts, as we go through life, I just want you to know, we can always see what's wrong in the situation. 
It takes an act of the Holy Spirit to see what's right about it. Whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, think on those things. Now, I want to tell you a story about your perspective. These two moms were sitting on this park bench, and their kids were playing out in front of them. When one mom says to the other mom, yesterday was the worst day of my life. I was driving down the road when all of a sudden the car went from the right to the left and then up and down. I got to the side of the road and realized I had a flat tire, only to go to the back of the car and realize I had removed the spare from the trunk, and I was very upset about this. So I went to the front to call a tow truck to get help, and my cell phone battery died. It was horrible. At that exact moment, I got the kids out of the side of the car, and we were kind of jumping up and down on the side of the road, and a police officer stopped, turned on his lights. I was so embarrassed because somebody at that exact same moment drove by from church and thought I was getting pulled over. It was horrible. He called the tow truck, got us up on top of the tow truck, got us to the tire company. It was $800 to fix all the tires because Jeff took advantage of us when I were there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, is he even in here? <laughs> like, how does he know that? But took us to the tire company, and we had great service from Jeff. All right, there we go. So the kids were playing, and the kids sit, one kid says to the other kid, yesterday was the best day of my life. My mom, she's such a crazy driver. She went from the right to the left. It was like a roller coaster ride. We got to the side of the road. We got to dance up and down, and the police officer stopped. And we turned on his lights. He had lights and guns, and it was amazing. Went on top of this tall tow truck. We could see everywhere. It was so awesome. Went to the tire company. We got popcorn and played hide-and-go-seek. Yesterday was the best day of my life. Let me ask you, which was the true story? They both were. One decided to say, it was the worst day of my life. The other one decided to say, it was the best day of my life. See, it's time that we tell ourselves a new story, we tell ourselves a God story. And that's what I'm challenging you as a church. We could go back and dissect every little relational thing that ever took place in this church and go through everything and, and try to figure it out. Or we can start saying, guess what? God is doing something in this church. God is doing a miracle in this church. He's transforming us. He's shaping us. God is doing something in our elders and our deacons. God is doing something in our trustees and those around us. God is just helping us to love God and love people. And it's an amazing church. And church, I would just tell you that if you want to move forward in doing the things of God, begin to look ahead and not look back. You begin to say, guess what? I'm looking at the cross. My eyes are fixed and set upon that cross, and I'm not going anywhere else. I'm not trying anything else. I'm not transforming anything else. I'm just setting my eyes there. And if it's in your marriage, I would say stop noticing their fallenness and start seeing their redemption of Jesus in them. And begin to say, guess what? This is what's good about the other person. This is what's right about the other, other person. This is, what, is, what, is what God is doing in that other person's life to change and transform them. So I hope as we, as we go from here today, as we're going to take communion in just a moment, my hope is this that you would hold on to, that you would cling on to those things that are good. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Abhor or push away what is evil, but cling on to what is good. And the only goodness we will ever have on this side of heaven is Jesus. Is his death, burial, resurrection, and appearance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for Crosspoint, 
fellowship, God. And the miracle that you are doing in this church, God, I pray that as we take of communion this morning of the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would take and you would bless our time together, God. God, we want to hold on to you, God. We want to hold on to your cross, God. That the story that flows through our mind and out of our mouths will be one that brings honor and glory to you, God. That you would transform us, God. You would reshape our thinking, God. I'm so thankful for all my brothers and sisters that are here today and that Jesus Christ is our Savior, God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.